Hey guys, uh, I know I'm early, but I'm just trying to get ahead of the game. I was able to start writing today and just feel like the message is in a place where um, I can really use some feedback. Uh, so this is uh, week four or week five, I don't even know. Either way, the core value is life is better together. Um, I got some notes there. You can see them uh, on some big ideas that I really want to communicate. Um, but here goes. Let me know what you think. Loneliness sucks. About 10 years ago, I tweeted a lyric from Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows that said, if everyone loves you, you can never be lonely. And a person who had recently walked out of my life uh, had the nerve to text me a screenshot and said, you know, that's just facetious and not actually true, right? And I just said, yeah, I got it. I'm loved by plenty of people and I'm still as lonely as can be. I said, why they thought it best to send me that text, I'll never know. But either way, um, I wish that lyric was true. I wish the loneliness I feel at times still could be cured by playing to a crowded room and getting people to like me for a little while. As many of you know, I love to host people. My favorite thing to do when people are over is, is play bartender. Not because I want to get people drunk, but because I want to help people have a good time without having to sit down long enough to have a real conversation. See, because real conversations are uncomfortable. Real conversations require vulnerability. Real conversations force me to be in touch with some sort of pain, whether it's in our world or deep inside of me, and I hate going there. I hate the tension. I hate going to dark places of our world and my soul. So instead, I just create a space for everyone around me to escape the monotony of their to-do list for a little while and just be. And I watch as they take a deep breath and breathe in life and friendship for a little bit. I'm convinced we live in a world that rarely slows down enough to let us experience that. So when people come to my house or go out on my boat or do whatever they do around me, I gladly embrace the opportunity to serve them so they can experience a real rest. My problem comes when everything, everyone leaves or things slow down and I'm forced to stop serving people and just deal with the reality and pain within myself. Years ago, I'd work 70 or 80 hours a week before going to the gym until midnight or later, and then I'd just go home and pass out for exhaustion. And yeah, I did it because I was bored, but more so I did it because I hated dealing with the empty, lonely feelings of being the only person in a house meant for two. See, this morning we're going to take a look at a guy that deals with loneliness for most of his life. The book of Jeremiah was written roughly 600 years ago before the birth of Christ by a prophet named Jeremiah. He was from a little town outside Jerusalem called Anathoth, and his forefathers moved there when they were banished from serving as priests because they sided with a failed takeover of the king. That typically doesn't go too well. In addition, in addition to his embarrassing lineage, Jeremiah was called at birth to serve as a prophet during the most devastating events in Jewish history, prophesying from the 13th year of Josiah's reign until shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. His 40-year ministry was marked by opponents' attempts to silence him by means of arrest, trials, beatings, imprisonments, and even assassination plots. Throughout the book, the prophet laments, to God, he, he cries out to God and even called down judgment on his opposition. And he earns his title, the weeping prophet. And while public ridicule of his message was swift and extreme, the prophet's personal sacrifices were far greater than, the, than any public outcry. His life experiences were crafted to reflect God's revelation to the people of Judah. For instance, his prophetic office included the command to remain single. So the Lord instructed Jeremiah, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have any sons or daughters in this place. 
And it's pointed out by one biblical scholar, Hosea's marriage is shocking. He marries a prostitute and has to keep going back to her, but it's not unheard of. Jeremiah's bachelorhood, however, is so unusual among the Jews that the Old Testament doesn't even have a word for bachelor. And it undoubtedly reinforces the questions about him. One person in a recent commentary on the book of Jeremiah adds this, given the importance of children in that culture, this prohibition would have been startling to both the prophet and the people. And to further complicate matters, Jeremiah was to also refrain from attending social events such as funerals and weddings. His life was consumed with fulfilling his prophetic role. I think it's safe to say that Jeremiah felt alone at times. Not only did people publicly oppose him and his message, but he didn't even have a family to go home to at night. So in the face of great opposition, with the lack of family, how does he still accomplish his mission and battle the loneliness he must have felt? How does he persevere and overcome all that was in front of him? I want to give you three things that Jeremiah held on to that helped him accomplish his mission. And I'm confident if we would take the time to hold on to these same three things, it'll help us, us, it'll help us accomplish our mission too. One is Jeremiah had confidence in, in his calling. Now, whether he liked it or not can be debated, but whether he had confidence in his calling cannot be debated. Jeremiah was unwavering when it came to what he was called to do. One scholar references Frodo's protest to Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring where he cries out, I am not made for perilous quest. I wish I would have never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? And Gandalf replies, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others don't possess, nor for any power or wisdom at any rate. But you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. Jeremiah had questions about his calling, and he has doubts in his own ability. You can read them in Jeremiah 1. And his doubt is in his own ability to fulfill his calling, but he knew that God called him to be a prophet. And in chapter 1 of his book, he says this. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, some of us in this room know what God has called us to do in our lives or our specific situation, and we're frustrated that things don't look like we thought they would. It's like we're looking around wondering if God actually called us to do it, and if he did, why hasn't he better controlled the outcome? I just want to encourage you, if you're in a place of deep frustration, wondering where God is and why he hasn't worked things out yet, remain faithful. Don't lose heart and don't give up. Hold on to Galatians 6, 9 that says, don't get tired of doing what is good. At, the, at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Jeremiah was confident of his calling. Secondly, Jeremiah placed a high value on prayer. See, in moments when he had no one else to talk to, he talked to God. And in moments when he had others to talk to, he still chose to talk to God. Regardless of what was going on for Jeremiah, he made time to pray and connect with his God. One example of this comes in Jeremiah 12, right after a failed assassination attempt on his life from some guys from his hometown. He prays this, Lord, you, have al you always give me justice when I bring a case to you. So let me bring you this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? 
You have planted them and they have taken root and they've prospered. Your name is on their lips, but you are far from their hearts. But as for me, Lord, you know my heart. You see me and you test my thoughts. Drag these people away like sheep to be butchered. Set them aside to be slaughtered. Just a quick side note. Some of you element regulars may be thinking, why does the pastor always pick verses where people pray dark prayers for somebody else's destructions? I'm not really sure. I guess I just feel like they're relatable. Either way, Jeremiah doesn't hesitate to pray when things go wrong and he feels alone. He doesn't hesitate to pray when God saves him from his opposition. The reality is he just doesn't hesitate to pray. See, some of us wait till the crap hits the fan before we pray. Others of us refuse to pray in tough times because we don't know how a good God could let our lives go so wrong. Jeremiah sets a different example. He just prays. He prays authentically. And he's, when he's good with God, he prays a thankful prayer. When he's confused by God, he prays a prayer and asks questions. When he's pissed at God, he prays and he expresses his frustration. I challenge you to follow Jeremiah's example and place a high value on prayer. Make it a priority and you won't regret it. Third thing from Jeremiah is he made the most of his brothers. See, it wasn't often in his life that he had great people around him. Most of the time he had friends that smiled in his face and then tried to stab him in the back, literally. But Proverbs 18.24 says there are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. And Proverbs 17.17 provides a little bit more clarity on this, saying a brother is born to help in a time of need. Many versions say that a brother is born for a time of adversity. See, Jeremiah had plenty of friends and a few brothers, but in the moments when he had a brother by his side, he appreciated them. Not only would he thank God for them and take the time to thank them for their help, but he also allowed them to help him. Many of us have brothers in our lives that are willing to help and fight alongside of us in our time of need, and for one reason or another, we refuse to take their help. For some of us, it's pride. We don't want to be helped because we don't want to share the glory. But here's my question. What good is glory if you don't have anybody to celebrate it with? Accomplishing great things is much greater when you have people to share it with. Isolation gives you all the glory and no one to share that moment with. And that is a lonely place to be. For others of us, it's fear. We don't want to be helped because we don't want to need help. Life has taught us and we've learned that we, when we have needs, everything falls apart. So we just refuse to be real with ourselves. We definitely refuse to be real with others about the fact that we might need some help sometimes. For the rest of us, it may be that we legitimately don't have anybody. Maybe you just moved to the area and you don't know anyone you can count on. Maybe you just lost the person you used to count on. I don't know your situation, but I do know you're in a room full of people willing to fight beside you and you don't have to be alone. God may have placed that person in your row this morning so they can be a future brother to fight your battles alongside you. I'm about to sneeze. Hang on. Oh, so annoying. Take a look at the example of Jeremiah making the most of his brothers in Jeremiah 38. 
Nashep, son of Matan, Ged, son of Pasher, Jehukal, son of whoever, and Pasher heard what Jeremiah had been telling the people. He had been saying, This is what the Lord says. Everyone who stays in Jerusalem will die from war, famine, or disease, but those who surrender to the Babylonians will live. Their reward will be life. They will live. The Lord also says the city of Jerusalem will certainly be hand- Lord also says the city of Jerusalem will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon, who will capture it. So these officials went to the king and they said, "Sir, this man must die. That kind of talk will undermine the morale of the few fighting men we have left, as well as that of all the people. This man is a traitor." So King Zedekiah says, "All right, do as you like. I can't stop you." I love the passivity there. So the officials took Jeremiah from his cell and lowered him by ropes into an empty cistern in the prison yard. It belonged to Malchijah, a member of the royal family. There was no water in the cistern, but there was a thick layer of mud at the bottom, and Jeremiah sank down into it. But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, an important court official, heard that Jeremiah was in the cistern. At that time, the king was holding court at the Benjamin Gate. So Abed rushed from the palace to speak with him. My lord, the king, these men have done a very evil thing by putting, Jeru- by putting Jeremiah, the prophet, into the cistern. He will soon die of hunger, for almost all bread in the city is gone. So the king told Ebed-Melech, take 30 men with you and pull Jeremiah out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed took the men with him and went to a room in the palace beneath the treasury where he found some old rags and discarded clothing. He carried these to the cistern and lowered them to Jeremiah on a rope. And he called down to Jeremiah saying, put these rags under your armpits to protect you from the ropes. And then when Jeremiah was ready, they pulled him out. So Jeremiah was returned to the courtyard of the guard, the palace prison, where he remained. See, Jeremiah didn't turn down the help of Ebed-Melech and his crew. He gladly accepts it and allows them to care for him in his weakest moments. One chapter later, he would deliver a prophecy to Ebed that that he and his family wouldn't suffer or die when the city fell to the Babylonians. And I recognize that you may have been hurt by some so-called friends in the past, But don't give up on your band of brothers because of that. All throughout the Bible, from the beginning of time to the end of time, it is clear that you and I were not designed to do this life alone. As we close, I want to go back to my story of loneliness that I told you at the beginning. It was during that time I saw a post on Facebook from my tattoo shop of a tattoo that someone had recently got. The crazy thing was I knew the guy who had gotten it. He had been a leader in my youth group, and we were both big Ravens fans. I didn't have his number anymore, so I decided just to shoot him a message on Facebook. Hey man, I've been thinking about you a lot recently, and wanted to see if we could catch up sometime and grab lunch or coffee or something. Feel free to call or text me if that's easier than Facebook. Gave him my number. Talk to you soon. I had no idea how he was going to respond, but five hours later... I had no idea how he was going to respond. I just knew I needed a friend that I could trust, so I decided to reach out to see what would happen. Five hours later, I got this response. Heck yeah, dude. I'd love to. We worked out some details, and we wound up getting together. But here's what I didn't tell you. He was friends with my ex-wife and her new husband. 
And like most divorces, mine didn't end on the best terms. And I'm sure he had heard her side of the story. And I had no idea what he thought of me. But when you're lonely, you tend to be desperate. Fortunately for me, I reached out to someone with enough maturity to see the pat to see past the stories they'd heard and just take the time to hang out with me. A couple of weeks later, we met up for dinner and over drinks. I mentioned that I had saw that he had liked cigars. He nearly jumped out of his seat, asked if I liked cigars, and quickly said, "Let's go smoke." When I nodded, we got to the cigar shop, and it became clear to him and pretty much everyone else that my experience with Swisher Sweets and Black and Miles hadn't prepared me for a real cigar. Not only did he have to help me light the cigar, he later had to tell me to stop. He later had to tell me to stop because I was starting to feel it a little too much. I remember a lot of things from that night, but I remember one thing more than all of it. After he lit our cigars, <laughs> we walked into the lounge to grab a seat. And he said, this is why I love cigars. For the next hour, nothing else matters. And he plopped down in a comfy leather chair. I asked why nothing else matters for the next hour, and he said, because it'll take me an hour to smoke this. So literally, the crap can hit the fan out there, but in here, it's just good. And we spent the next hour or two or three catching up, laughing at some old stories, sharing some new ones, and talking about the crap of life. I had no idea three and a half years ago that that same guy would be closer than a friend. That he'd be a brother born for the times of adversity. That when the crap hit the fan in my life or his, that he'd show up, or I'd show, that, that he'd show up and we'd fight the battle together. I had no idea about the man and father I'd become because of his influence on me. I had no idea. I just sent a text and hoped for a response. He responded, God moved. Vulnerability is hard. Expressing needs is hard. But loneliness is far worse. Take the step, send the text, shake the hand, get real, and fight this this thing called life alongside your brothers. So that's 18 minutes with a random pause there in the middle. Um, I have some thoughts about some stuff that I need to add, but I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Let me know what you think. Thanks.